morning. Um, what we normally do here is work our way through a book of a Bible at a time. We do that for a couple different reasons. Uh, one, so everybody can shout, got it, because they know where we're going to be. Uh, one reason is because we want to help you study the Bible for yourself. Um, we don't we want to uh, equip you with the tools that you need to be grounded in the Word of God. That being said, this morning we're going to uh, pause in our study of Colossians, and we are going to uh, look at uh, an entire book this morning. Uh, just to put you at ease, though, that entire book is just made up of one chapter, so uh it's, we're not going to be, I know Caleb tried to tackle Jeremiah and what other one did he do in, in one sermon? Um, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to do one chapter this morning. So in your, in your Bible, turn with me to Jude. Turn with me to Jude. If you don't know where Jude is, just go to the very back of your Bible, find Revelation, and then turn a few pages back. small letter, so it's easy to miss, right before uh, Revelation. There we go. And I think because of its size, um, Jude is probably one of the most, if not the most, neglected book in the New Testament. Part of that's because of its size. We, we often equate worth with the length of the passage. Um, so the book is short, so many just assume that it's not that important. I think another reason it's often overlooked is because many see that it, or think, have this view in their minds of the book of Jude as being negative, uh, having a negative message. And most of the book, as we'll see, is addressing judgment and condemnation for false teachers. I think this, this neglect of Jude is, is a big mistake. Uh, this letter that Jude writes is just as important now as it is when Jude wrote it. So before we get into the passage, let's talk about who, who Jude was. Uh, in verse 1, he, uh, he uh, describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So Jude was a pretty popular name at this time. There were, you can see, six different men in the New Testament that share that name. However, the Jude that wrote this letter that we're getting ready to read is Jude, the brother of Jesus. We know almost nothing about him, except that we do know that in Jesus' earthly ministry, his brother did not follow him. It wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead when Jude began to follow him and believe in him. And it's interesting that he doesn't identify himself as Jesus' brother. Instead, he identifies himself as a slave or a servant to Christ. So this is who is writing this letter. Jesus' brother who was changed by the resurrection of Christ. And the main thing I hope we'll take away from our study of Jude this, this morning is this. I've boiled my sermon down to one sentence. If you have been called by God, contend for the faith, knowing that you are kept by Christ, even in the midst of rampant ungodliness around you. I'll say it again. If you have been called by God, contend for the faith, knowing that you are kept by Christ, 
even in the midst of rampant ungodliness around you. So let's start reading in Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sex sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all day that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up foam out of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all who convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them these are grumblers malcontents following their own sinful desires they are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage but you must remember beloved the predictions of the apostles of our lord jesus christ they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions and these who cause divisions worldly people devoid of the spirit but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your word, um, 
Show us the truths of your word. Help us to apply them and live them out in our own lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Christians are those who have been called by God. Look back at verse 1. Jude is addressing his letter. says, to those who are called. And the word here for called is how the New Testament often talks about salvation, about how salvation is a product of God's gracious reaching out to undeserving, helpless sinners uh, and bringing them into a relationship with himself. And I think in our church culture today, uh, the words that we use, the the language that can be uh, used in churches today can make things a little confusing, more confusing than it should be. Uh, I grew up thinking that um, those who are called are the special ones, the preachers, the missionaries, the evangelists. Those were the called Christians, and everyone else were just regular Christians. Uh, and, and it's true that there are those who have had a special calling on their lives, but that's not what Jude is talking about here. The truth is that if you are a Christian, you have been called by God. And it's important to understand that Jude is not just using called in this general sense either. He's not talking about the open invitation that is for all sinners to come and give their lives to him. The word here, the word he is using here means this effectual and irresistible calling of God. It is the particular calling that God has saved you. And it's not because of anything special about you. It's because of his great love and his mercy. And this is such a, a weighty truth just in this opening verse, this first verse. Uh, I wish we had just time to, to just preach on. We could just preach on this one verse. Um, but I just want to say a couple of things about it here. Um, first, uh, I think Romans 8.28 is a pretty well-known verse. Uh, however, I think we often overlook part of that verse. Anybody know how it starts? Romans 8.28. We know that, yeah, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Uh, say it louder. For those who are what? Called according to his purpose. What a, what a glorious promise. For those who have been called. For those who have been saved by the grace of God, all things work together for good. God is working all things for your good for those who are called. The second thing I want to say about the beauty of what it means to be called is the assurance that comes with knowing that you are called by God. Because our calling is from God, we can have assurance in our salvation. John Piper said it this way. He said, God does not reverse or repeal or cancel his call. The whole point of an omnipotent call that creates what it commands is to guarantee God's invincible purpose in the lives of his people. If God has called you, you are justified. And if you are justified, you will be glorified. If you have been called by God, there is no question of whether or not that uh, God will change his mind. God's calling is effectual and it is permanent. We can rest 
and knowing if we are called, then we are God's and he will not reverse that calling. He will not repeal that calling. So we are called by God. And then the next thing I want us to see is that Jude says, now it's time. If you are called, now it's time to fight. It's time to contend. Look at verse three and verses three and four. It says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude introduces his reason for writing by saying, I wanted to talk to you about this one thing, our, our common salvation that we share. But because of these urgent needs that have arisen in your church, I need to write to you about this other thing instead. And so you can feel the urgency in his writing. He's appealing to them to, to stand up and fight for the truth of the gospel. The word here for contend is the same word where we get our word agonize. It means to make a strenuous effort on someone or something's behalf, to, to fight with intensity. The picture Jude is painting here is that it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a struggle, but all who are called by God are in this fight. Then he says what we are contending for, what we are fighting for. He says, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So what are these things that we fight for, that we contend for? These are, we often talk about closed-handed and open-handed issues. So open-handed issues are those things that uh, we can disagree on with other Christians about, but we can still, at the end of the day, hug them, call them brother, a brother and sister in Christ. So things like uh, the style of music in church or how often we do communion. Uh, nowhere in, the, in scripture will you see, where you will see that we have to do it every week, that we do it here every week at this church. There are other churches who don't do that. And that's okay. That's an open-handed issue. So what Jude is saying here is that we are to fight for those closed-handed issues, those, that faith that was delivered once to, to all the saints. And uh, one of the commentaries I read, it listed 12 of those things, 12 of those Closed-handed issues that are non-negotiable. Uh, and they are the inerrancy and infallibility of Holy Scripture. So closed-handed issue, we believe that the Bible is God's perfect word. The full and eternal deity of Christ. The miraculous virgin birth and sinless life of Jesus the Messiah. The historical creation of man and woman made in God's image. The sanctity of all life from conception to natural birth or to natural death, sorry. The sacredness of marriage between man and woman. The sinfulness of all human persons. The substitutionary death of Christ for sinners. The bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The exclu exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. Jesus is the only way. The return of Christ 
and um, the assignment of all people to either eternal blessedness in heaven or eternal condemnation in hell. So those are close-handed issues that we fight for. This is what Jude is talking about when he says to contend for the faith that was delivered to the once to the saints. Those are the things that we fight for. The open-handed issues we can have disagreements about, we can have debates about, um, but these are the closed-handed issues that we stand firm and solid on. And this isn't just the job of pastors or theologians who are called to fight for these things, but it is a call to all who have been called by God. We, we must know what we believe. In order to fight for something, we must know what we're fighting for, right? So we must know, we must ground ourselves in Scripture and know what it is that we believe. And Jude is writing with urgency, and we need to sense that urgency and pick it up when we read this letter. False teachers just weren't a problem in Jude's day. They continue to be a problem today. And the question is, do we care about that? Do we care that there's false teachers that are leading people away by promising uh, health and wealth and whatever other ways that people distort the truth? Do we care about those things? That people are being deceived and led away from the true gospel. Do we care about false teachers? Jude certainly did. He cared so much about protecting and fighting for the faith that he's knowing now and uh, the majority of his letter, he's going to go into great detail about why these false teachers were so dangerous. The first thing that he says is that they were creeping in unnoticed. It would be really helpful if when a false teacher comes into the church that they announce themselves as a false teacher. That would make things a lot easier for us, right? Don't listen to anything I'm about to say because what I'm about to say is contrary to what the gospel says. That, that would make our job a lot easier. But what Jude is saying here is that they are creeping in. They are subtle. Oftentimes a, a false teacher will, uh, most often how it works, they'll take a, a truth from Scripture and just slightly twist it. And they make it sound really good, but it's contrary to what Scripture is teaching. They take it out of context. They make it say things that it never meant. So Jude goes on to say four things about these outsiders who are creeping in in verse 4. Uh, says they were designated for condemnation. So God knew that the, there would be false teachers in the church. Next he says that they live ungodly lives. Uh, uh, Jude loves to, to say ungodly. He says it over and over again. We'll see. So that they lived ungodly lives. Uh, next, it says um, that they pervert the grace of our God into sensu sensual sensuality. Um, so they are perverting the grace of God. They were using it, uh, the grace of God. They were twisting it and uh, justifying living ungodly lives. And then last, it says that they denied Jesus Christ as master and Lord. And what it seems like he's saying when he says that is not necessarily that they were audibly denying the deity of God, of Christ, but rather by the way they were living was a denial of Jesus as master and Lord over their life. 
So now we come to this, sec- this long section in the middle of Jude's letter, verses 5 through 16. And these verses, they can be hard to grasp what's going on. Um, so we'll start before we dive into it. I'll give you kind of an overview of what Jude is saying, and then we'll look at it uh, a little closer. So in this section, Jude uses six examples from the Old Testament. We have three that are groups of people uh, from the Old Testament. Then we have three individual people from the Old Testament who experienced God's judgment. And then Jude uses one illustration from a book that was uh, not scripture, but it would have been well known to his audience at that time. So uh, he's, he's giving six Uh, examples from the Old Testament of what he's trying to say. Three groups of people, three individual people, and then one, uh, a a seventh, is an illustration from a book that's not in Scripture. So in verses 5 through 7, these are the groups of people who have experienced God's judgment. Uh, Verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although that you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So he's reminding us that the Israelites who were brought out of slavery uh, in Egypt, the first generation of Israelites did not see the promised land because of their failure to believe God. Then in verse 6, he recounts these fallen angels who were judged for their rebellion. Then in verse 7, he references Sodom and Gomorrah and how they were uh, the cities and the cities around them, and they were destroyed because they gave themselves sexual sin in in a blatant way. And the destruction of these cities serves as a type and an anticipation of the judgment of the everlasting judgment that is coming. So these three events in verses 5 through 7, are he's using those to support his claim that God judges certain people. And then he applies that in verse 8. Look how he pulls those events into his present day. In verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner, these people also. And then verse 10, these people. Why are they being destroyed? Uh, Verse verse 8 gives us that answer. It says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. They are being destroyed because they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So, in other words, um, that blaspheme the glorious ones, we we may not, that that can be hard to understand. So, these false teachers, what Jude is saying is that these false teachers are so arrogant, they are so, um, yeah, arrogant that they uh, are rebuking Satan, they're rebuking these fallen angels without the authority of God without the the Lord's authority backing them up. And it says that Michael, the archangel, didn't even do that. It says that Michael, the archangel, called on the Lord to do so. So what Jude is saying is that they are so prideful and they are acting according to their own will and desire instead of submitting to God's authority. Then in verses 11 through 16, he continues with this history lesson, um, backing up what he's saying. Instead of this time using events to prove his claim, he's going to use three personal examples. Uh, First, he says that they walk in the way of Cain in verse 11. And we all, 
sure we're all familiar with the story of Cain who murdered his brother, but I don't think that's what Jude is really referring to. Uh, I think he's more talking about how Cain rejected God's word. Uh, If you want, turn back to to Genesis chapter 4. We'll look at that real quick. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. We'll look at what I think Jude is getting at here when he when he used references Cain. Verse three through seven, it says, "In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the first fruit of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell." The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So before Cain became a murderer, God spoke to him. God gave him instructions of what was acceptable acceptable and what was not acceptable. And the fact that, that Cain murdered his brother tells us that in the end it was because he had rejected God's word. Jude uses this example of Cain because the problem facing the church in, in his day was that teachers were, these false teachers were just doing whatever they wanted with God's word. They felt free to disobey it. They felt free to change it. And then next Jude says that they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam is another story uh, in the, Old Testament found in Numbers. Uh, his downfall was because he was greedy. He loved money. Uh, his uh, Balaam, this this teacher of God's people, he turned against God's people because this foreign king bribed him. So in essence, he laid aside God's word and taught something else in order to make himself rich. And then the third example from the Old Testament is Korah. Uh, Numbers, that that story is found in Numbers chapter 16. It says that Korah became rebellious. He rose up against Moses, uh, and he not only did it himself, he led around 250 other people uh, in his rebellion. So Jude compares the, the false teachers to Korah because they, like Korah, refused to submit to God's appointed leaders. Then in verses 12 through 13, uh, Jude doesn't shy away from what is going to happen to these false teachers. He uses these metaphors to describe what, uh, what these false teachers are. He, he says they're hidden reefs, they're waterless clouds, they're fruitless trees that are dead and uprooted. They're wild waves, wandering stars. Those who abandon the faith, those who promote sensuality, those who seek out their own gain, or work to undo the true nature of authority are destined for destruction. This is why Jude is writing to us to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith so that you won't end up following those false teachers. Or even becoming like those false teachers is why we need to contend and fight for the faith. Then closing this section out, Jude uses this illustration from a a book that is not in scripture, but his audience would have been familiar with it. Enoch is a character from the Old Testament, but uh, this uh, 
part that Jude is drawing from is called one Enoch, which is not in scripture. And he's referencing it because it would have been familiar to his readers. He wants his audience to know that even in their li- the literature of their own day, the ungodly exist. Uh, so by using this um, well-known piece of literature, Jude not only supports his convictions that the Lord will have judgment on false teachers, but he pr- also provides us positive model for God's people to emulate. Um, so verse 14, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. A lot of ungodly in those two verses. Um, He's saying that uh, these ungodly people are coming into the church, but be like Enoch. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like Balaam. Don't be like Korah. Enoch lived in a a very ungodly time, but he was described as someone who walked with God. So verse 3 and 4, Jude explains the what of his writing. He's making an appeal to contend for the faith. Then verses 5 through 16, he explains the why. It's because these ungodly people are creeping into the church and threatening the church. Now in verses 17 through 23, he answers how. How do we fight for the faith? How do we contend for the faith? Look at verse 17. It says, but you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. So these verses are Jude's discipleship manual for contending, for fighting for the faith. This is what fighting looks like in the body of Christ. And what's interesting about this list is that there's only one real command in this verse. If you look at it, there looks like there seems to be several commands in the verse, but there's really only one command, and it's found in verse 21. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the command. That's how you contend. That's how you fight for the faith, by keeping yourself in the love of God. And then the, the verses surrounding that kind of unpacks what that looks like. It says, by building yourself up. What is it? that mean building yourself up it reminds me we were in uh, we looked at colossians i'm gonna have to look it up now because it's not in my notes colossians chapter 2 i believe talks about this same idea of being built up Um, i can find it colossians chapter 2 verse 6 it says therefore as you received christ jesus the lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then it talks about making sure no one takes you captive by, by empty philosophy. Um, so 
part, what does it mean to, to build yourself up? It's going to be grounded in the word of God. Know what it is that you believe. And then it says, by prayer. Keep yourself in the love of God by building yourself up, by prayer. And then verse 22, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. I love how Jude puts this here. He's been talking about, the majority of his letter, he's been talking about these false teachers who uh, are pulling people away from the truth of God. But we need to see the distinction here between false teachers and those who have doubts, those who ask questions. Not everyone who has questions is a heretic. We should have mercy on those who have doubts. Be patient with people who have questions about their faith. Help them through their doubts. Help them to confess help to conform them into the likeness of Christ by stabilizing their faith. The church should be a safe place for people to have questions, for people to have doubts, to be open and honest with their struggles in the faith. And then he says to save others by snatching them out of the fire. So the doubters require mercy and patience, and then there are those who are wandering off in the wrong direction those who are abandoning the, abandoning the faith, those who are playing with sin. And he says to pull them, to snatch them back. Those who are abandoning the faith, those who are playing with sin, we must bring them back, pull them back by sharing the glorious truth of the gospel with them. So this is Discipleship 101 for Jude. And as the church gives herself to this activity, that's what it looks like to contend for the faith. If we're not doing these things, then we're not only not contending, we are in danger ourselves. Keeping ourselves in the love of God means that we keep the commandments of Christ. It means we submit to his authority. We live in total obedience to him. But then there's something pretty interesting about this idea of keeping ourselves and being kept. So Jude bookends this letter. So back in verse 1, it says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So which is it? Are we being kept by God, or are we keeping ourselves in the love of God? The answer is yes, we are. Both. The gospel that saves us is a gospel that also makes demands of us. Not in a way that we earn our salvation, but in the way like what Jesus said. When he said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So, yes, we keep ourselves in the love of God, but we need to realize that we are being kept by God. If we are called, we are being kept by God. It's a a comforting truth to know that the God who has saved us is keeping us from stumbling. I'm sure Jude's readers were beginning to question whether or not they were in danger of being led away themselves by these false teachers. I mean, it seems to happen to to a, a 
many people. Uh, I know in the last few years, it's been a, a phenomenon of just these uh, prominent Christians who, uh, or those who claim to be Christians, uh, who post online about their deconstruction from the faith. Uh, these are former pastors or former worship leaders or former musicians or whoever it is. They, they feel the need to now de- deconstruct their faith and post about it online. So if it can happen to those people who we thought were so solid in the faith, why wouldn't it happen to us? It could happen to anyone. But then we look at verse 24. And we realize that we have a God who is able to keep us from stumbling. God has called you and God is keeping you. You are his and he will not let you fail. Yes, we sin. Yes, we fall. But God will pick you back up. And then, and not only is God keeping you from stumbling. Then it says that he will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. There's coming a day when we will stand in the presence of the living God. And for those who have been called by God, those who have trusted in Christ, you will be presented as blameless. How is this even possible? It's possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is a beautiful thing. The wrath and judgment that we deserve was placed on Christ, and we will be presented before God as blameless. When we stand before God, he won't see our sin, he won't see our guilt, he won't see our shame, he will see the righteousness of Christ. It's because of this beautiful truth that Jude closes out his letter with praise. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.